Well, good morning, everybody. Sorry for the late start, but there's apparently pretty bad traffic out there. And uh, we, I know of one person still who's uh, in a cab somewhere, so any event. Um, I want to welcome all of you uh, to the Atlantic Council. I'm Dick Morningstar, the founding director and chairman of the Global Energy Center, for those of you who don't know me. And we're pleased to have here with us today Dr. Michael Benelli, who walked from the Hotel Melrose uh, at uh, uh, near Washington Circle. So if he's a little bit haggard, you'll, you'll understand, as well as Peter Dean, who's also uh, was with him. Um, Dr. Benelli is the founder of the Sustainability Laboratory, and we'll be discussing the application of principles of sustainability uh, to the energy industry, environmental issues, and policy. And as we face the growing threat of climate change and continue to grapple with maintaining energy security while minimizing environmental degradation and avoiding the disruption of communities, it's essential uh, that we uh, approach energy issues uh, <coughs> from, uh, from a perspective of sustainability. And Dr. Dr. Benelli will share with us his insight and how the energy and environmental community can ensure uh, the sustainability of its efforts by uh, taking a very holistic approach, uh, which, and he'll describe his five principles. Uh, as the founder of the Sustainability Laboratory, Dr. Benelli has pioneered uh, groundbreaking work in sustainable development and green economics and education, including Project Wadi Atir, uh, uh, where the Sustainability Laboratory is leveraging local Bedouin traditional skills and cutting-edge technologies to develop sustainable agriculture in the midst of the Negev, Negev Desert of Israel. Uh, Dr. Benelli brings to his work many years of experience uh, providing management consulting throughout the world uh, and in diverse institutional settings ranging from small tech firms to multinational corporations, government agencies, NGOs, and many others. Uh, I'm now going to turn the floor over to Dr. Benelli and uh, Peter Dean. Uh, Peter, a good friend and one of our senior fellows and an expert on sustainable energy, will moderate uh, our discussion. And Peter is on the faculty of the Rhode Island School of Design, where he's taught for 18 years and provides strategic advising and co-founded the Biennial Design Science Symposium. Uh, so. Uh, I will turn it over to uh, Peter and uh, Dr. Uh, Benelli. I uh, should mention uh, we have special guests today, Ambassador Kozlerich, former ambassador to Azerbaijan, uh, the, person who is, uh, the person who is still in a cab because the Uber driver is an idiot, uh, uh, is uh, David Byrne, who was former Irish commissioner to the EU, who was uh, very interested in coming today. And assumedly, uh, at uh, some point in time, uh, he will uh, show up. Uh, so Dr. Benelli, Peter. Uh, the format for this morning is uh, for Dr. Benelli to present his five core principles of sustainability. <laughs> Story of my life, folks. Um, and uh, afterwards, uh, I'll moderate. Um, uh, really, this is not a sage on the stage format, 
this is a conversational format. So um, have your questions, hone them, ask anything about anything to do with what we're talking about, and uh, let's see if we can't move this discussion forward. Dr. Michael Benelli, my friend, and a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. Talk some more so I could uh, stop perspiring. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. Thank you uh, for having us. I think at the outset, I'd like to, uh, to say that I'm no energy expert. I, I really don't know much about the sector or the industry, but I've done, I've spent some time thinking about the issues that relate to sustainability in general. And what we thought we'll do today is present some thoughts about uh, uh, what we call the principles behind the concept with the idea that then we could discuss together with you in an open forum uh, what are the implications. If, if those premises are accepted, if they look uh, reasonable, what do they imply to the whole notion of transition? I think one thing I would say at the outset is that I, I do feel very strongly that uh, one of the major challenges that we face on the planet is, is to how to organize a rapid transition from a fossil fuel economy to other uh, uh, non-depletable and clean and dependable and abundant uh, sources. Now, the story of, of the principles is a little uh, personal, so I, I want to give you a little bit context of the context. What, why, why are they there, how they were developed, and so on. Uh, my interest in the topics that come under the sustainability umbrella, so to speak, and I'll give the, the term definition also in a, in a couple of minutes, uh, was ignited when really years ago as a student I came to meet and work for a number of years with Buckminster Fuller who in the 60s and early 70s was already dealing with many of the issues or addressing uh, in an informal way with a group of youngsters like myself at the time uh, was addressing the issues of uh, world resources and population and things of that nature. And that uh, interest was maintained through the years and through all the studies that I've done and all the, the project that I've been involved with until the 90s, the, the mid-90s, early, early turn of the century, where I find myself at the heart of the multilateral development agencies, doing a lot of work as an outsider with the World Bank, with other development banks, with the UN agency and others. And these were institutions that following the, uh, the uh, um, Rio meeting on environment and development, we're beginning to internalize the concept of sustainable development. Uh, so I think perhaps the most intense and interesting uh, piece of work there was in uh, <coughs> structuring, designing the global environment facility with folks at the World Bank. This was a facility that was uh, developed in order to finance the transfer of technologies to developing countries. Uh, technology was uh, particularly environmentally benefit. The concept there was incidentally very interesting, and that was that the fund will pay the incremental cost of technologies. So imagine if you have a country who wants to build a coal burning plant, and the conventional technology costs a million, and the superior technology cleaner will cost two million, the bank will actually finance the incremental cost, the difference, and this will be an out outside grant. In other words, it's a, actually a very interesting primitive concept of, a, of a dealing with externalities, right? Because we say it, it's worthwhile uh, paying that increment in order to cover the thing. Anyway, because of my interest in the topic, I was very happy to be in what I felt was the kind of cutting edge of what was happening in the world about sustainable development. 
but it didn't take very long to, uh, for some kind of disease or unease or whatever, discomfort to set. When I began to realize more and more and be concerned about the huge gap between the, the rhetoric of sustainable development, what was actually happening in the ground in projects all around the world, you saw huge amounts of money going and very, very slow uh, uh, moving forward. So uh, to me, that produced a little bit of uh, maybe uh, a, a crisis. I thought that what I was doing was useless, uh, or if not useless, at least of very little impact. And I began to focus on trying to understand why things are not moving faster. And my conclusions were, incidentally, in those years also, quite a few private sector companies began to enter that uh, space by uh, kind of projecting themselves, at least to the public, as green or socially responsible and other uh, things of that nature. So I began to look at that. Uh, some of the projects at the bank gave me the opportunity to visit many companies around the world. And of course, the familiarity with the multilaterals were going deeper. And I realized that in both cases, the institutional structure was unsuitable for major, renovation, major innovations, the kind of innovation that we needed in order to spur the transition to, uh, uh, to sustainability. Uh, and the, the limitations are obvious. In the private sector, even the most ambitious CEO who wanted to push his, uh, or, or pull his company further uh, would very soon hit the very low ceiling of the prevailing accounting system, which did not allow him to be too adventurous. I still needed to take of uh, shareholder value and uh, showing results every quarter and so forth. In the multilateral, things were even worse uh, in the sense that where decisions have to be made by consensus, you always have to find the lowest common denominator that everybody agrees on. And by the time you get there, there's very little uh, relation sometime between the decision and the problem that you're trying to solve. Uh, so that gave me, the, uh, brought me personally to the conclusion that we, we cannot really uh, uh, seek much hope from the large Leviathans. And the idea, the very uh, Don Quixotic idea of establishing the sustainability laboratory uh, came about. And the idea for the lab was to actually focus on uh, developing over time a portfolio of showcase uh, demonstration model project that will really focus on what do we need to make a breakthrough in any domain. And then, of course, uh, when we started thinking about the lab, the, 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 why the lab? Why the concept of the lab? I think when you think about it really deeply, the, the issue of the transition, the issue of, of uh, really establishing the concept of sustainability as an organizing principle on the planet is totally unprecedented. It's a, it's a huge challenge, and there's absolutely no experience. There is no cookbook to tell us what to do, and therefore there are no experts on sustainability. And no matter where you are in the pecking order, corporate pecking order, you don't have the solutions. You don't have the answers. We expect always to have answers. If you don't have answers, if you don't have a cookbook, you need to experiment. Uh, in institutions that are risk averse, you cannot experiment because you cannot allow yourself to uh, fail uh, uh, too much. And therefore, uh, the idea of the lab with the connotation of sound science, experimentation, trying new grounds, failing and learning, and so on. So the first question was, what would make the lab different than many uh, sprouting uh, sustainability centers or institutes for sustainability, those kind of things? And I thought that two things were missing in the, in the overall discussion. One was a more rigorous definition of the term. 
Uh, this is important because the term, as you all know, is now used for almost everything. It's, uh, it's became an adjective that you have to slap to anything to be uh, kind of uh, politically correct. Uh, and in the process, although it looks like awareness is growing, the, the term has been devoided of, of, any, of any meaning, really. And incidentally, just for our discussion today, the way that I'm using the term in the context of this presentation is really in the context of the planet as a whole, the health and integrity of the biosphere and the long-term well-being of humanity. That, that's the envelope that we're talking about. Uh, and it, as I said, it's just like the other day, it was very interesting. I was in a, in a uh, yoga class, and the young girl who was teaching was talking about sustainable asanas. Uh, so there are many uses like this which are uh, grammatically correct. In the, at the bank, you'll go to the World Bank, you'll find out people talking about sustainable loans. Uh, of course, the notion is whether the loan will be repaid or sustainable project. You think, oh, they're financing projects about sustainability. No, it's whether the project will have its own kind of thing. So all of these are, are grammatically correct uh, ways to use the term, but they really have very little to do with that context that I'm talking about, the planet, humanity, or other forms of life, and so on. So, uh, and incidentally, the prevailing definitions which you are probably familiar with, the, the definition that came out of the Brundtland Commission, before the Rio conference, uh, you're familiar with the definition? That sustainable development is development that takes care of current needs without uh, jeopardizing needs of uh, future generations. So this is a cross-generational uh, definition. But when you think about it a little bit, it has absolutely no meaning. It has no operational meaning. Uh, we have no concept about future generation. Are there going to be 1 billion, 10 billion, 1 person, 10 person? Uh, what are their needs? What do they want? They're not with us to discuss their future. Uh, and of course, there's no way to really compute economic utility values for future generation. Uh, so for a while, I thought, why, why the people on the Brundtland Commission were very smart uh, group of people who really understood very well the issues of environment and development. Why did they come with such a definition that had no bite to it, no meaning? And the, the, my own kind of uh, 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 guess about this is that this is a typical UN definition. No one will say I'm against future generations. So here you have a thing that, uh, that uh, is a positive statement that everybody can agree with, knowing that it doesn't really commit you to anything fundamentally different. So you can sign, you can do a big ceremony, go back home, and, and things stay business as usual. Uh, so uh, the, the first thing about the concept, I, I want to first focus a little bit about uh, defining it uh, perhaps better. The first thing about the concept is that it pertains to a particular kind of a balanced interaction between a population and a carrying capacity of an environment. It can be any population, any, any environment. It could be amoeba in a petri dish, or, or uh, lions in the savanna, or fish in an aquarium, or humans on the planet. And incidentally, those two sides of the equation, population and carrying capacity, are basically taboos. <laughs> in international development uh, circles. They are taboos because you cannot touch the population side of the equation. This is where population, uh, uh, population are rapidly expanding in developing world. And therefore, this looks like a, another, another form of imperialism, trying to put other people down in numbers. And of course, the carrying capacity uh, is not very popular topics in the, in the OECD countries, where more of the consumption is taking place and the uh, other adverse impacts. So you start with the concept that is absolutely essential, but not uh, speakable, uh, so to speak. 
Now, this interaction is in, in interesting in the sense that it's not a linear interaction. It's a, it's a circular interaction where, in fact, the two sides of the equation, population and carrying capacity, define one another continuously, kind of co-creating, uh, uh, if you will. The, the, a, a, a particular environment determine what kind of population is possible in the first place, and a population, in a real sense, modifies that environment to make uh, the room for further steps in evolution. The whole evolution in the biosphere, of course, reflects that interaction where microorganisms, as you know, I mean, some 100 million years ago, the composition of the gases of the atmosphere was such that it could not support the kind of life that we know today. It requires a whole range of interaction, first with microorganisms, to modify the gas composition, and so things develop. Uh, there is some other uh, interesting, uh, interesting aspects to that in, in interaction. Uh, that it's systemic in nature. Usually it reflects a whole complex of things. It's not just two arrows. There are many arrows there, which are typical to any ecosystem. Uh, incidentally, that what makes an ecosystem and some other uh, uh, characteristics. When you look at that circle, you resolve it to a, a, a higher resolution level. You have, oops, I'm always making mistakes with those things. You have the population on one side and the carrying capacity on the other. The whole side of the population itself, which reflects to, uh, uh, relates to a whole system in its own right, a whole dynamic system in its own right, that includes things like birth rate and fertility rate and growth rate and, and, and death rates and so forth, all not completely well understood, incidentally, by demographers, by people who deal with those issues today. But the points that I'm trying to make here is that population impacts the carrying capacity through its activity, the level, how intense. So you've got two things here, the scope, how, how large the population is, so to speak, and what is the intensity of its activity. And of all the multiple things that could be in, in, the, in, in that interaction, it looks like hugely complex, that can be reduced to two essential channels. One channel is the channel of uh, demand on resources. And the other is a channel of uh, pro uh, production of byproduct that have to be absorbed by the environment. So this is basically a, a good definition of carrying capacity, is the ability to provide uh, uh, a, a resources for consumption. Uh, I don't mean consumption is going to the shop. Uh, obviously, uh, population build themselves by feeding on the environment, right? So that component, the resource component, and the ability to uh, to absorb the, the byproducts are at the heart of that, uh, that definition. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, for most, the, the, the central axis that you get the population activity, carrying capacity, for most uh, species, it's essentially a physical issue. It's a metabolic issue. It's energy and matter. In human social system, there are many other dimensions that affect that balance at the end. Uh, and these include how society organizes itself, how, uh, what is the accounting system that we use, what are the value system, what are the values that we hold here that drive everything that we do, and things of that nature. Uh, about that interaction, the, the obvious thing to say is that you are familiar with that, the, the, the uh, exponential curve growth in population in the next 300 years, which is... Uh, uh, accompanied by any kind of measure of activity, whether it's the 
uh, industrial production, the levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, and the one on the right, which is particularly significant to our uh, discussion today, is the rate of expansion of, uh, the, the, of use of uh, energy. As you can see, this is way out of date. This is going to just to the end of the century. If you had to add uh, Brazil, India, and China into that equation, you'll obviously be off the chart. In the Al Gore way, we'll need the ladder to climb it. The important thing here is that these are all fossil fuel-based energy sources. Uh, still, the, the, uh, the uh, percentage of uh, renewable energy in that graph is, is very small. And if you want to dramatize that even more, I, I would say something like this. If you look, someone like myself, I was born somewhere here. And this is obviously a completely different uh, kind of equation. And even notwithstanding issues of climate change, which you'll notice I will not talk about much for uh, a, a number of reasons, uh, it's obviously not a very uh, clever thing to develop a long-term dependency on depletable sources to build our civilization. So it, it, even if there were no adverse impact of the kind that we are seeing today, it would make sense to begin to think what happened when, when uh, resources uh, 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 run out. And I'm well aware of, of, uh, of uh, thinking that the saying, yeah, you always wish there'll be another rock to squeeze, another rock to frack, another something uh, to get going there. Um, so from that, uh, re remembering that dynamics, the population carrying capacity, that definition was derived that sustainability is a dynamic equilibrium in the process of interaction between a population and its, caring, uh, and its environment such that the population develops to <laughs> express its full potential. You don't put any major limitation on what's allowed, what's not allowed, other than that condition without adversely and irreversibly affecting the current capacity of the environment upon which it depends. So you can see that that definition tries to mimic that circularity. It also tries to anchor itself in, uh, in variables that are measurable including well-being, for example, right? The gross national happiness, uh, potentially, things of that nature. Now, one thing that is important about this definition is that it tells you something uh, uh, which sounds very simple, but it's actually very profound, and that is that the state, sustainability as a state, is a systems state. It's not an adjective. What do I mean by system states? One of the interesting, uh, or more, uh, uh, deeper insights from cybernetics were uh, existing in a very uh, obscure paper that Norbert Wiener and his colleague wrote in the late 40s called, uh, what was called uh, Purpose, Behavior, and Teleology. In that paper, they made a direct connection between the observable output of any system, its behavior, to its internal structure saying that any behavior is mediated by a particular structure. Think about how important that is, because most, uh, most effort that I'm familiar with to reform tend to focus on the behavior, not on the structure itself, which is always much more difficult to deal with. So it says that the state of unsustainability, so to speak, that we're finding ourselves in the world today is not because some people are bad. It's not because uh, anything. It's, it's, a, it's the way the system is configured. And the way it's configured links uh, all the different interests that kind of self-reinforce in many ways. Education, business, this, that, all, all the things are in, a, in one system. 
What we see is its behavior. If we want to change that behavior, we better begin to think about what is the structure, what is driving it, and things of that nature. So it's this system, that system, our system, the planetary system as a whole, that is out of equilibrium. Remember I said dynamic equilibrium. That's another important concept uh, because it said that the, uh, the notion of sustainability, that state, is not something that you arrive at once and for all and then stay there, stays there. Uh, it's a thing that will have to be recomputed again and again as condition change, technology changes, population changes, the environment change, all of those kind of things. And the, so as I'm saying, this system currently seems to be out of balance. And being out of balance reflects itself in a number of symptoms. Those symptoms is what we miscall, I think, environmental problems. These are not environmental problems. These are, system, uh, these are symptoms of a large system at, in, at stress. And they manifest itself, uh, themselves in things like the ozone depletion, the, well, the climate change, the loss of biodiversity, all, all those familiar things. I won't bore you with the numbers here, which are increasingly growing. I mean, we began to talk about those things already 25, 30 years ago, but the rates are not diminishing, other than some successes uh, with, uh, with ozone depletion, uh, perhaps. All the rest are still expanding very rapidly, uh, both the loss of uh, soil to desertification, the decimation of forests, which are the, <laughs> the oxygen lungs of the planet, and, and, and many others. And you can look at it in a number of ways. You can interpret that condition in a number of ways. Some people say uh, uh, there's nothing unusual. It's always, there are always changes, there are always stresses. Uh, the research is not yet there. We need to do some more studies, that, that, that. Basically, business as usual. Uh, I think that although there are more and more signs of change, this is still the mainstream uh, of, of thinking ar around the world, unfortunately. Uh, the other way to interpret it is like some of the better environmental economics who are basically looking at it and say, okay, uh, we used to have a small, relatively small human economy and the planet was large. Now the human economy expanded. The planet remained as it was and we need four planets in order to make it. So we need to somehow pull back. Um, I don't know how helpful that advice is. I don't think we can pull back. I think that the development uh, a genie, so to speak, is out of the bottle. I don't think we can say, let's go back to uh, a, a kind of more, I don't know, what uh, way of life. So the, the third notion, which I think is very interesting, is that what we see in those things, again, as I said, is signs of stress. Is a sign of stress in the struggle between a, a system that is trying to evolve to a, a, a different way of reorganizing itself and all the things that are blocking it from getting there, which are all the prevailing interest of keeping things as, uh, uh, as they are. Anyway, whichever way you look at it, remember the population curve that I showed you, the very familiar one. There's a lot of people who are looking at it today and say, it's no longer an issue because populations now begin to stabilize and fall and go down in, in many countries. In other words, that equation that as you develop uh, population varies, so it's, it's okay, but look at this. If you look at the uh, population curve over a large, uh, like 10,000 or 15,000 years or something, you'd see that humankind kind of hugged the billion mark throughout history. And it's only sudden that it went to the numbers that we see today. So all this argument about population stabilizing is really argument about the angle of the tip at the end of this thing, that the change has already been done. And this change is unprecedented. 
we never had to manage the planet with, with uh, 9 or 10 billion people uh, before. And it, it, why is it interesting uh, to think that way? Because all the mechanisms that we have in place to make decisions about our life, about the planet, about politics, about our Neanderthal mechanism, they all emerged in a completely different environment that presented a completely different challenge, where the whole issue was how to compete and get the water or get the this and protect it from others and all the struggle that still uh, uh, dominate our world affairs. And I showed you before those graphs, right, of the CO2 concentration and energy uses. There's also a very uh, physical image of this uh, change, which is this one here. You're all familiar with those nightlife. Uh, uh, if you took that uh, photograph, if you could, took such a photograph 100 uh, years ago, this is not what you will see. It will be dark. 100, 200 years ago, it will be dark. Now, in a sense, this is an exciting picture. So you look at this Christmas tree with all these lights going on. Yeah, isn't it great? But this is actually a physical picture of burning up the planet because all this is burning fossil fuel. So when you think about it that way, it gives you such a, a slightly different uh, kind of thing. Anyway, what that means that we really have to rethink a lot of the thing that we have behind us, uh, that the change that we need to uh, uh, bring about is what uh, we come to call second order change. It change there is a very interesting distinction between the uh, change is change. But then there is a distinction between two types of change. Uh, a first order change, which is change in a system where the system still stays the same, right? You make all kinds of changes, all kinds of adjustments, but the system is the same. Or second order change, where you need change in the system itself. You see the distinction? In the second order change, you cannot, you cannot get second order change by tinkering at the margin. Another way, of course, to say it is first order change is change that occurs under a, a, a particular decision rule. A decision rule like an algebra, multiply by one. You keep multiplying, you get the series, the number change, but the decision rule remains the same. Or change in the decision rule uh, itself. And this is the kind of change that we need to bring about. And I think that, the, that because it's a second order change, and anyone who is familiar with change management, whether it's in corporate setting or government setting or personal setting, knows that second order change is the most difficult to do. Uh, incidentally, the term. Uh, uh, relates to the whole notion of a, a now popular paradigm shift that was introduced by Kuhn in his um, uh, essay about the, the uh, nature of uh, scientific revolution, uh, where basically argued that the way that science developed and evolved is that you have a prevailing theory that is accepted by an epistemological community of some sort, then some, suddenly there's a new evidence that is contradictory to the, to, the, uh, uh, to the existing theory. And the first attempts that can last for millennium will be to, to struggle against the new evidence. Uh, and, and then, of course, you require someone, sometime an, an outsider, like an Einstein or someone like this, to say, guys, or Galileo, this is your picture. Try to look at it this way. And of course, first you try to hang him or, or uh, ostracize him or whatever. But uh, at the end, that radical shift occurs, which is a typical second order uh, transformation. So this is really the, the biggest challenge that we have today, uh, I think, on the planet. When you look ahead, this is what we need to deal with. And actually, when you look, this is the only political comment that I'm <laughs> going to make to you. If you look at where world governments are 
and where the political discussion are, you see the huge gap between the, what I would call the real problem that are facing the next generation uh, and, and where things uh, are. So the objective of all this would be to foster, this is relates to that uh, definition that we looked at, uh, to foster a well-functioning alignment between individual society, the economy, and the regenerative capacity of the planet's uh, uh, life-supporting ecosystem. I think at the moment, it's a very interesting thing when you think about it, that we have an economy that is entirely divorced from the physical component that it ought to be based on. Uh, and the... When you, when you look at this, uh, going back again to that uh, familiar picture, uh, <coughs> and you look at all the components of that vector, the activity impacting the, uh, and these are things like the population size, we talked about this, the volume, intensity of activity, composition environment, available technology, view of the world, and, and our organizing principles. Uh, those could be clustered, I found, uh, uh, could be um, uh, conveniently clustered in five uh, uh, domains, if you like. Uh, the first, the material domain, that basically constitutes the framework for regulating the flow of energy and matter that is the basis of all existence, right? So the material domain deals with the physical component, energy and matter. The economic domain, <coughs> which provides the framework for uh, defining, creating and managing wealth, what is wealth the uh, domain of life, which provides a framework for appropriate behavior in the biosphere. We're only one species in one complex ecosystem, and we are not very good neighbors to many of the others. What is the appropriate behavior with, respo with, in, with respect to other forms of life? The social domain that provides the, the framework for uh, uh, social behavior, and of course, the spiritual domain, uh, which spiritual like, uh, or value, I don't mean it in any uh, uh, dogmatic religious sense, but what is the value that drives us? What are the fundamental assumptions that drives us in our interaction with the world? Now, interestingly enough, when I was working on this, it was very easy to focus on the first four. Very easy, you could focus on them. And for a while, I thought that I was done, and, but I had a sense that something was missing until I realized that what was missing is that spiritual dimension. And at the time, I was still interacting with colleagues at the bank and other places, and I would share my ideas with them and say, don't even use the term uh, spirituality. If you want people in government or business to take you seriously, you cannot use the term. And I would take it in or put it out, <laughs> depending on the audience, smaller, until I realized that this is really the linchpin. All the others are basically techniques and this one is the one that provides the, the center of gravity. Why are we doing things in the first place? Are we predators or are we stewards? And that's all the difference in the world uh, to how we, we organize. So the, each one of those domains produced from each one of those domains, there's derived a principle. And each one of those principles, of course, has a number of uh, uh, serious implications to what we do things, and if you were to look, I think we, we have a few, uh, uh, some thing about the text that I'll leave with you. We can't go uh, to it, in, it, it can be a little bit boring, uh, perhaps at some point, uh, and I want us to get into this discussion, so I'll run fast through the things. Uh, each one of those, I said, produce the principle, there are implication, and when you look at it, each one of those implications is violated all the time. So if the basic premise behind those definitions 
uh, is accepted, then um, we have to uh, even be more concerned about the change that is required. So I'll just say a few words about each one of them, and I'll show you the, the principle, and then we can discuss those things. So the result of this is a set of five core principles, each with its own defined policy and uh, operational implication. And the important thing is that that set is systemic in nation. You cannot isolate one or the other. You have to simultaneously address all the things. And there's a question, why do you need principles? Principles are limiting. Uh, I found in the early days a lot of resistance to the idea of uh, principle. These are impositions. Uh, but basically, the logic says if you want to go flying and you want to construct a plane, you better understand the principles of aerodynamics. And in the same way, if we are serious about instituting the state, right, sustainability of the state on the planet, we better understand what are the statements that we can make about it. If you violate, you're not going to uh, get there. So uh, we'll start with the, the material domain. And just to say a few things about this, this is a domain that is basically uh, not controlled, but uh, uh, that is <coughs> under the rule of what, of what we call physical laws, right? The, the law of, uh, of uh, interchangeability of uh, energy and matter, E equals mc squared, the first law of thermodynamics, the second that, that um <coughs> talks about the conservation of energy, that energy cannot be created or destroyed, and the second law that talks about the direction of energy uh, event. Now, the significance of all of those, that those things that looks like they belong to physics, not to economy, are basically describing the limitations on the use of resources. These are the ultimate limitation of the use of resources. Right? You agree with that notion? So, uh, and, and the interesting thing is that while the second law talks about the ultimate diffusion and uh, increase of chaos of all physical uh, uh, <coughs> systems, there are obviously regions in the universe where energy is actually being created. There are places where energy is being diffused and en places where energy is being actually compounded and order is being created. And one such place is a planet like ours, where energy of the sun interacts with matter to produce all these range of complexity for simple molecules to organic molecules to all form of lives to whole ecosystems to human consciousness as we know it, all of those kind of things. This is something very interesting. And it's the application of that consciousness, of, of awareness, of uh, intelligence to the physical component of the uh, 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 universe that allows us to reconfigure things, so to speak, as designers. You, start, you remember the world design there. And that's a fantastically important thing because it indicates that there is a very important function to this kind of intelligence, and that function is anti-entropic. It's about order creation. Although we are very good at creating a big mess, perhaps we are not focusing on what we should be doing, and that is that potential for uh, anti-entropic, to, to be an anti-entropic force. Now, the, all of this leads to the uh, observation that our current civilization, our current economy is extremely entropic. It's hugely wasteful and hugely destructive. Uh, we are burning, as we said, the sheep. Uh, we are burning the sheep, and we are burning it at a very low uh, efficiency. So for every barrel of oil, we get 5% work. All the rest is waste. That's not the way to conduct things if you're smart. So the first, um, the first principles the, on, for the material domain says contain entropy and ensures 
that the flow of resources through and within the economy is as nearly non-declining as is permitted by physical law. You see this, what is happening here. Uh, you cannot remove entropy altogether, but you can be more wasteful or less, less wasteful. And that notion of controlling uh, entropy through superior design is at the heart of that whole concept of doing more with less and so forth. So there's some implications to this. Uh, you want to strive for the highest resource productivity. Uh, you want to amplify performance with each cycle of use. This is a fa uh, famous Fuller's notion of doing more with less. Uh, you want to employ regenerative energy sources rather than uh, uh, depletable and recycle resources that are non-regenerative and, uh, uh, and, and, and some other implications like this. We don't have to go through all of them. We can leave it like this. Uh, the second pertains to the economic domain. I'll just say a few words, but the economies are basically markets where transactions occur and where some value frameworks are used in order to evaluate transactions and make decisions. Uh, and we treat those frameworks as though they were given by objective given by nature, a little bit like the laws of physics, but they're not. They're human constructs. At each time, they reflect our ignorance and our, our values, our concerns, our interests, and they can be changed. They can be, uh, and the, I think that the most important point behind the economic thing is to say that the current, the prevailing accounting system allows, uh, it, it gives us a very distorted picture of what we are doing, largely because it neglects externalities, right? The impact of depletion and, pol and pollution. Uh, but it does some even worse things. Uh, the whole notion of growth forever. Uh, if you're dealing with systems in the way we're talking about, there's no such thing. Uh, it also violates the, the, <laughs> the law of conservation of energy, among other things and so forth. But it also allows us, in some extent, to do even uh, something that is more absurd. And this is counting consumption as income, <laughs> right? We burn oil and we, think, and we see the bank account growing because we, we sold that oil where there's a price on oil and so forth. You, you see what's happening there? And this is, of course, a thing. If you were running your corporation like this, you'll be put in prison the next day. But we are allowing that to happen on a much larger scale. So the second principle says adopt an appropriate economic system, uh, uh, accounting system uh, fully aligned with the planet uh, ecological uh, processes and reflecting the bi true biospheric accounting. I think at some point we'll have to move for fiscal, purely fiscal accounting, not only recognizing other form of capital, but also being able to translate, anchor it in thermodynamics. And then we'll begin to understand the important role of thermodynamics in economic definitions in the first place. But some energetic measures will have to be uh, put in place to give us a true picture of what it is we're doing. And interestingly enough, the technologies uh, exist today that will allow us at every moment actually to compute where we are in that equation of the population, the carrying capacity. If you translate population, not just numbers, but needs, and you have some com uh, com uh, a measure of the carrying capacity, you can always know what you can allow at every given time, and therefore really develop global strategy that will allow you to know how much you can expand given uh, certain conditions. The domain of life, uh, I think there the, the most important thing to say is that the huge success of our species, uh, come, uh, adaptive success in colonizing the whole planet comes at a huge cost to other species. Uh, and this is uh, of great concern, not only because it's not nice to kill the, the spotted owl, 
But because as science tells us, we're beginning to recognize that the long-term viability, the, the, the uh, I think, yeah, the, the long-term viability of complex systems is produced by virtue of their complexity. You see, it's their internal complexity that makes them long-term viable. Why? Because the higher the complexity, the higher the internal variety, which allows the system to reconfigure itself as conditions around the change. You see this? Uh, if you have a control system like a, a, a light, you know, there are only two positions, right? On or off. If you have an ecosystem, much more complex thing, it allows that system to, to have many more positions in response to stresses uh, on it. Uh, and we are mono, mono, mono what? monoculturing the planet, and uh, monocultures are brittle in, 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 in their very nature. So that's a dangerous thing to do, and we are doing it not only with physical things, but culturally as well. Uh, so the, the third principle says ensure the essential diversity of all forms of life in the uh, biosphere is maintained. Uh, you can produce climatic change disasters and still compensate for them. Once a gene pool is gone, it's gone. Uh, and I think this thing incidentally has a lot to do with issues of genetic engineering and other that are sometimes not uh, spoken about in, in, the, in, in relation again to the physical reality of what does it mean to, to constrict. I'll be done in a couple of minutes. The social domain, uh, uh, sorry, did I say something? Uh, yeah, I said about the social, I won't talk about just say maximum degrees of freedom and the potential self-realization of all humans without any individual group um, adversely affecting other. You'll recognize it, the old uh, golden rules. And of course, if we behave that way by definition, everything will be okay. Uh, to go to the spiritual domain, uh, I think this one just acknowledges the mystery. Uh, which would mean be a little bit more, a little more humility, compassion, things of that nature. And I'll just jump to the end. The thing is that you have to look at that system as a whole. The spiritual dimension is fundamental by producing that center of gravity. Uh, balance integration is essential. And the interesting thing is that it's like a holographic unity in the sense that each one of those domains reflects all the others in its own. Uh, Thing. So if you were to uh, uh, run through it quickly and, and uh, summarize in brief, contain entropy, account for externalities, maintain diversity, self-actualize, but benignly, and acknowledge uh, the mystery. And to finish this transition, just I thought I'll go back to Fuller that I started with. And what is this transition about is how to make the world work for 100% of humanity in the shortest possible time through spontaneous cooperation and without ecological offense or the disadvantage of anyone. Thank you. Michael, why don't you take a seat and... <clears throat> Well, that's covered a lot of ground, Michael, I must say. Can you hear? Very good. I'll scream, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, we'd like to um, engender a conversation, uh, Q&A, but really a conversation. As Michael uh, correctly said, um, he's not an expert, and neither are any of us. This is an unprecedented effort. Uh, that the globe is undertaking. And uh, I do believe that the principles are a, uh, a filter uh, 
through which we can evaluate our design decisions, our political decisions, or any decisions we make, really. So um, I thought I'd get it started, and then we can open it up. Uh, so we are currently faced, uh, as a species, with some daunting global challenges. These will require, as you mentioned, second-order changes at the system level. Uh, we seem to be mired in first-order changes at the symptom level, um, which is, at best can be characterized, I believe, as doing the same old thing, perhaps less badly. Uh, and this is not a recipe for, for success long-term. So how do you see the application of the core principles um, as this filter? When, when uh, I, I'll, I'll make a little, uh, perhaps longer answer to that. Uh, when we began to play with the idea of the lab, uh, the question was what the lab will do. And the, when I look around, the normal definition is, by, is a sectorial, um, to give a sectorial answer. We'll deal with climate change, or we'll deal with energy, or we'll deal with water. And I didn't feel that that's a good way to think uh, about those issues. Uh, so I, I said what we'd like to do is to actually uh, provide that framework of the, uh, the definition and the principles and the notion of the requirement that, that any development issue requires a holistic whole system view. You cannot isolate one from the others. And that therefore, if you take any issue and look at it through the prism of the principles, uh, th this is what will make the difference. This is where you seek the difference. And the principles are defined in such a way that forces you through the uh, uh, implications to see what is the requirements that you want to achieve if you're serious about uh, So the principles are actually can be helpful in defining the goals of a second order change. And this is an important concept because the way we approach the things usually through the notion of uh, problem solving. Hmm. We have a problem, let's solve it. The, the, one of the fascinating concepts that Fuller introduced with the, in his own philosophy, this concept of design science, is the, the design approach is distinct from a problem solving approach. And the difference is that in a design approach, you don't focus on a problem because then you are trapped by the, by the very uh, uh, definition of the problem. What you want to do is to project a desired goal, a desired what is it that you want to achieve, and then cast back and begin to go how to achieve it. This, incidentally, is not something uh, new. A lot of very advanced technologies are developed that way. First, you specify what you want to achieve. And sometimes the science or the technology doesn't even exist. Now you have to start inventing it to get there. This is how we need to deal with the planet. We have to start by saying, what is it that we want to achieve? And then how, what is the necessary thing? Now, when you talk about the necessary thing, this is where you get into the conflict between the requirement of the change mm -hmm. and the prevailing interest that uh, obviously uh, don't want to see that change because there's good reason to stay where you are. Uh, that, and that brings me really to my second question. Um, clearly, uh, the equally daunting are the impediments to this kind of change. Um, how do you see those uh, in your view right now, the main obstacles? The, the again, from a system point of view, the obstacles are, are few. Uh, one is the, the, the obstacle of ignorance, mm -hmm. <laughs> that you really don't see things as you should. Uh, perhaps, but I, I'm not saying it is an ideological thing. Mm -hmm. 
that uh, really the sun doesn't set or go up, but the earth revolves around the sun. You see? So you have to see reality in the appropriate uh, way in the mm. first place. But then there are other impediments, uh, uh, and uh, not, not the least of which is the epistemological impediment. The language we use to mm -hmm. talk about things sometimes prevent us from seeing the, the, the paradigm shift that is required. It's a different language, you see, the, by definition. Uh, but then, of course, there are structural impediments. Remember, we talked about structure and behavior, and I said that the results that we see in the world are a product of a particular structural configuration. Mm -hmm. And to deal with that configuration is the most uh, difficult thing that there is, but it has to be done. So the, the principle at least provides some sense of the direction to go. And uh, the way we deal with this with the project that we do is actually to try and demonstrate through particular project the, the application of those principles so that those become like a microcosm for the planet, if you will, like the project that uh, you mentioned earlier, Wadi Atir. Uh, that project is a project with a Bedouin community in the Negev Desert, very small community of people that nobody pays attention to in the end of the world. And yet the approach to that is the same way you would approach the whole planet mm. in some ways. Uh, what do I mean by that is that you had to take a, 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 a systemic view of the whole of the issue there and integrate the innovations that that project produced in relation to each one of those domains. The, the economic domain, the social domain, the, this domain, all, all of those. The technology, the physical domain, all of those. Mm -hmm. There are many, many fantastic projects around the world today uh, that come under the sustainability umbrella. But if you look at them, they tend to be uh, sector or issue specific. So there are projects about water, or projects about energy, or projects about women, or projects about agriculture. This is also how, of course, the development agencies are uh, structured internally. Mm -hmm. uh, so in this project, we tried to say uh, you have to implement something in all of those dimensions simultaneously in order to show the change. Yeah. Could you explain a little more concretely uh, what you did with that project and how these principles and how you did incorporate all these principles? Do that, that might be helpful. Okay. Uh, the Bedouin community in Israel, uh, in the southern Negev, about uh, 200,000 people or so, uh, basically a marginal uh, community uh, in the, in the, how do you call it, the totem pole of Israeli society, they're probably at the very bottom. Uh, they've been neglected by all Israeli governments for years. Uh, uh, they are the highest in terms of uh, the statistic of poverty, lack of education, lack of uh, access to resources. And they've been locked uh, for the last six, uh, 65 years in a battle on uh, land disputes. Uh, you know, the story is familiar. It's like everywhere. The, the, the tribe sits somewhere. The government comes and says, what are you doing here? He says, this is mine. I've always been here. Show me your papers. I have no papers. If you have no papers, you're illegal. And if you're illegal, you don't. Uh, if you're illegal here, you don't get uh, any infrastructure, no electricity, no water, not all that. So, I was. Uh, I, I went to visit that part of the world, which I used to be familiar with many years ago, where you could walk in the, that area for four or five days without seeing another human being. And suddenly, I was there. I was there to visit the Blausen Institute for Desert Research, because I was very interested to see their technologies, fantastic things about energy water, anything that you need to live in the desert. And I suddenly was exposed to 
the conditions in the Bedouin community. And I couldn't believe that there are actual citizens in a country like Israel who live in such conditions. It, it didn't look right. Uh, and there's a road there. And on one side of the road, there's all these incredible technologies. On the other, there's all this misery, no future, no hope. And nobody's putting the two together. So I so thought, here's a fantastic opportunity. This was eight years ago. This is just from the beginning. Here's a fantastic opportunity to demonstrate what we are trying to demonstrate about sustainable development and about up, uh, applying the principles. So remember, there are five domains there. So let, let's, what we're trying to do there, I think you mentioned, is to develop a model for sustainable agriculture in arid zone that will benefit that community, uh, will be good for that region, or will be replicable anywhere around the world in, in similar uh, dry conditions. Uh, and it based on the, on, the, uh, on the Bedouin tradition and knowledge of the desert and desert agriculture, but uh, really leveraged with very advanced uh, technology. So on the material domain, what we tried to innovate, we've, we've, uh, so we're developing an experimental farm, if you will, with a number of functions like herd growing, herd growing for, uh, for uh, dairy products, high-end dairy products, uh, <coughs> and, and, and so on. So this whole enterprise is being supported by an infrastructure, integrated infrastructure of green technologies. We designed that... Uh, we had a very nice design team of different experts from different air, uh, technologies, and we designed this thing that integrates uh, by connecting all the different functions so that uh, the waste of each one becomes the resources to another. At the heart of it is a very interesting uh, hybrid system uh, for energy generation, solar and wind, so we can use the solar during the day and wind during the night, including storage. That would be the first in the world. I think that will be implemented a year from now. Um, and some other technology innovation, like the uh, treat, uh, treatment of water uh, and, and, and recycling of water, uh, gray water, and so on. On the, uh, on the economic domain, the prevailing convention is to say, let's get these people a little education so they can get jobs. And so we're not interested in job creations. We want to create a group of entrepreneurs who launch their own businesses, who run their own businesses, who are responsible for their own future, who own what they do, and so on. That was a major um, uh, jump there. On the social domain, uh, many radical innovations. The, the Bedouins are extremely tribal uh, and, and clannish, and tribes don't always do very well together. And we said we want this project not to be associated with one family or one tribe, but we want the team who works on it to come from all the different uh, tribes and different villages and different things. We were very successful with that. Uh, we said we want women to work together with a man as part of the team. This is unheard of, and we were able to produce that. We have some young women who are working on you, you, You're all familiar with the, the uh, increasing realization of the importance of the role of women in development in general. Here, we were actually able to go against all the rules and all the taboos and have men. There's a lot of uh, uh, interesting uh, activities by women in the Bedouin community now, but there are always groups of women working with other women. And we said we want the, 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 the team to be men and women, and, and, and that's been spectacular, uh, the, the impact of that. Uh, we also said we'd like this to be organized as a cooperative, not the traditional way of the, the sheik who is the boss and everybody does what he says and so forth. So very radical innovation there. Uh, on the what did I not mention? I didn't mention the value, the spiritual domain. Uh, that was very interesting. One of the things that that group that started to work produced was a value proposition, like a declaration of principles. 
that the project adheres to and anyone who wants to be associated with it. So there's a value proposition that is that describe how people will uh, deal with each other, how they'll relate to animals, how they relate to the, the world and so on. So, and oh, there's another thing that, that we've done that uh, I think is perhaps emerging as one of the more uh, significant. It's part of the physical domain, if you like. The, the, we managed to get a, a piece of land which is about uh, 100 acres. But uh, if you look at the satellite picture from uh, 2008 when we started, it's like moonscape. There's nothing there. Not only there's nothing there, I wish I could show you the pictures. I didn't uh, anticipate uh, going there because they're very exciting. Uh, there, there are two issues there. One is that the soil, it's a typical uh, issue of man-made desert. The northern side of the Negev used to be a very fertile area. In fact, in Byzantine time, they used to export uh, wheat to Rome from there. Uh, so it's a land, it's a soil or area that lost its, where the soil lost its fertility. It's completely depleted of organic matter. Uh, it, it's useless uh, due to mismanagement, uh, overgrazing, monoculturing for hundreds and hundreds of years. The other issue there is that the soil is such that when it rains, even the little rains, it's 120 to 200 millimeters a year, the top hardens like concrete. So the water doesn't seep into the ground, but creates those patterns of erosion of small ravines feeding into larger ravines. And you get this phenomena in the Negev where you have rain in one place and huge floods like 20 or 30 miles away, but nothing stays on the, on the ground. So we said one thing that we want to do is to reverse the infertility of the soil, uh, not by using uh, chemical fertilizers and so forth, but being true to those principles, if you like. Uh, and returning to life. And we chose to go with actually a very simple approach uh, of uh, uh, enriching the soil by planting and uh, just stopping runoff by creating those very low, low impact, low earth mounds, basically Nabataean technology. So we created those low earth mounds like this without disturbing the soil and all the microorganisms uh, all over the site that stops the, uh, and we finished that uh, in 2013, so it's, not, it's only three, uh, three years ago. Uh, and since 13, we've been able to capture all the rain every winter on the site, and it's a lot of water. And in those areas we planted, on that 100 acres, we planted about 4,000 trees. And the trees uh, took on like, just once the water was there, they took on like crazy. And what happened there was absolutely amazing. I didn't anticipate the speed of it because we also wanted to have an impact on the biodiversity of that dead site. It's a site that maybe you'd find two scorpions there on an occasional raven if there was a dead animal. Uh, once the trees took hold, and this is within a year, I mean, really, the rapidity is unbelievable. The whole flora on the ground, on the ground floor changed because the trees now provided protection and nutrients and moisture. So all kinds of shrubs and flowers, and it's really like a veritable jungle on that level uh, appeared. And virtually moments later, all the cross-pollinating bugs are coming. And following them is who? The birds. Uh, and following the birds are predators. So within three years, you have a site uh, that is just green and full of light. With, it costs $200,000 
to do that. And it's really unbelievable. And I, I really am sorry that I can't show you those pictures because they are, you, you'll open your mouth like this, it's there. So we uh, actually started uh, doing some work, and I hope we'll increase that collaboration with the uh, uh, United Nations uh, uh, Convention on Combating Desertification. I, I hope that answered the very long <laughs> I mean, I, I, would, I would invite everyone to visit the uh, website, uh, www.sustainabilitylabs.org, and there's a, a link to the Wadi Atir project there. And um, you will be amazed, truly. So this is our chance to open it up. If you'd kindly state your name and, and uh, what organization, if any, you represent. And Good morning. I'm Bob Eichhorn with the Atlantic Council, formerly with the State Department. We have a microphone. Um, I was particularly struck with your uh, structural behavioral Dichotomy. It, it reminds me of uh, Johann Galtung, who I studied with in, in college, and his sort of structural and actor uh, a, a approach that uh, you know, where you have bad structures and bad actors, and you know, and it's very different in terms of how you deal with it. But anyway, I, and and you might want to elaborate a little bit on that issue of of what you mean by structure in today's world. I mean, one of the big issues, certainly processes, is urbanization. And that has a big impact with regards to resource use and, and energy use, et cetera. Um, but uh, at State, I was involved in the development of the Sustainable Development Goals and the U.S. position on that. And I was particularly interested to see what you thought of that, of how, where that came out. Because, I mean, frankly, I was a little disappointed that basically while it advanced the Millennium Challenge Goals, it didn't provide a integrative framework for all the different goals. And that's why I think that's the kind of framework that you're presenting here, if it could be applied in terms of taking all these 26 or so goals and putting it into a national framework that was more integrative, would in a sense be a real uh, way of moving ahead in a more uh, effective way in terms of sustainability. So I wondered what your yeah. views on that were. <coughs> About the Millennium Goals, it's very interesting. These are personal observations. Entirely, the, the, the whole uh, uh, international community prior to the Millennium Goal was, was organized around problem areas, as I said before, climate change, this change, that, that. And of course, it didn't lead to much. There was a big disappointment about uh, results of development since after the war. So there was a switch to the Millennium Goal. But the Millennium Goals, when you look at them, they're basically a wish list without any connection between the things. And it doesn't tell you. I mean, for example, you, you can argue that, that alleviation of poverty, as expressed by the Millennium Gold, can be a total disaster. Because if you alleviate uh, poverty with the same economy that we are running, you'll only exacerbate the, the adverse impact, right? So I thought that that list, uh, I, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but was basically useless. Because anyone can come with a wish list. And again, no one will say I'm against it, like the cross-generational definition. Everybody run into it. And the, the thing that is missing in all that political or politicized environment is the understanding of underlying structures, how things work. Not what I, you know, uh, that it's good to have, uh, uh, not to have poverty or, or, or thing like this. Uh, so there's no architecture there. It's a structure that, that doesn't have anything to stand on. And as I said before, this is one of the greatest insights of general system theory, in particular cybernetics, is <coughs> the understanding 
that if you want a result, it has to be, uh, it has to be produced by a structure. And in social system, structures are, uh, unlike in architecture, they're not physical things necessarily, but they're the way of doing things. What are the, what, what, what are the, what, what is the logic of the counting system? This is a structure. Uh, what is this, the, how is decision making organized? How is power organized? Uh, all of those are <coughs> actual structures. And those structures have manifestations in the, certainly in the corporate world, certainly in the government, the way you elect, election is a structure in, in some ways. And it's those structures that I kind of uh, uh, tongue in cheek referred to as being Neanderthal because they were emerged, they had a very good usefulness in a completely different kind of world. And so if we want to be able to deal with our world correctly, we have to understand what are the kind of structure that will serve us well. And we are far from that. Yes. Richard Cosmo, George Mason University. Um, it, it's easy to get overwhelmed with the scope of the problem and, and even your, your five principles. And maybe I don't have an, maybe I'm going to answer my own question, but do you start this at the top uh, with a system of nation states which have proven themselves not very efficient or effective at dealing with the problem? Or do you go to the community level, like you've described in the Negev? It's probably a combination of the two. But I don't think you know top-down change doesn't strike me as the starting point here. But I don't know where the starting point is. I, I, I yeah, I think you're right. I, I think uh, uh, top-down or bottom-up are again uh, conceptual extremes. Uh, you have to be omnidirectional. <laughs> You have to deal with what we call top, and you have to deal with what you, we call bottom. And, but it has to be done in an integrated way. This is a, not, not separation between the two. That's the challenge. Mm. So a more comprehensive uh, approach where, with some level of simultaneity, yes. where all five principles are brought to bear. But inclusion, you, you, you cannot deal with solutions from above. This is one of the problems of development today that are pushed on people because uh, there's no, uh, here, a very good example, I'm sorry, just one second. A very good example again is with the Bedouins. Uh, in that struggle about the land, the government came up with this idea that they'll, obviously nomadic way of life is going out of style everywhere. And in Israel in particular, the negative is so small, there's no way to run. So they came up with a deal They say, if you relinquish, uh, if you relinquish your claim to land, we'll give you the uh, house with the infrastructure in a town and so forth. And the government went on to develop uh, actually seven Bedouin towns and about half the population, the Bedouin people, moved to those towns. Uh, but those towns, nobody ever talked to a Bedouin to ask him, what's a Bedouin house? What's a Bedouin town? Uh, they were built without any consideration to cultural or anything. They were built without any consideration to the fact that they're in the desert. So now you need air conditioning, you need this, you need that, all kind of thing that nobody ever used before. They were putting tribes together that have been locked in, uh, in uh, how do you call it, in blood feuds for the last 1,000 years. So they're just killing each other across the street and uh, all kinds of stupid things like this because it was bottom up. Uh, now, you could not start things uh, bottom, uh, so this, was, uh, this is top down. You cannot just start things bottom-up because in many cases the bottom doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the things. So you have to integrate the two to come together 
to uh, produce the goals of development project together, to produce a strategy, how to go about it together, much more. Uh, and that's a hugely difficult thing when, yeah, sorry. Okay. Yes. Good morning, Morgan Scott with the Electric Power Research Institute. I manage our portfolio of sustainability research there, which has 43 utilities, US, Canada, and Mexico. So as you might imagine, my interest lies in the energy transition part of this conversation. Um, and it's interesting to look at sustainability through your perspective with five principles, which is quite different than the traditional triple bottom line, three-legged stool view of sustainability. So I'm curious, has the lab done any research or projects that takes that five principle framework and applied it to the energy transition conversation, <coughs> either through you know a broad look at the framework or an actual project similar to your agriculture project? Beautiful question. The, the answer is unfortunately not. Uh, I'm very eager to do such a project, the research project, but my orientation <laughs> there will be a little different. You see, it's very interesting. When you look at the energy sector now and all the talk about energy independence and so forth, it's, it's again the same fragmentation. What you try to optimize is locally, whether national independence or thing. What would be a fantastic uh, project to do, and maybe we can do it together, is to look at what does it mean? What, what does pl planetary energy independence mean? That would be completely different, because then you'll go. You'll not <coughs> max. You'll not uh, maxima. You, you'll not uh, optimize uh, utilities or, or those kind. You'll optimize the totality, and you look at all the possible uh, alternative resources, and you look at the distribution of energy, and you look at consumption as part of that system, and not just somebody who pays the bill at the end of the meter and all kind of thing. Anytime you want to do such research, we'll be there. <laughs> Yes. You next. I'm Tom Cunningham with the uh, Global Energy Center, new deputy director. Thanks so much for coming. I think, as I think about what you're saying, I very much agree with the importance of understanding this holistic um, reality or the way that we're in. But the challenge is, in a way, the issue is so self-evident, but how do we apply it is, is it's like you said, Ambassador, overwhelming. And maybe, and I know the onus is on the energy experts or the foreign policy experts to apply this kind of thinking to achieve the chance transformation that is, that is required. So it's not that we can ask you how to apply it. It's really for us to take the, and unpackage it in our own context. But here's one way maybe to get at that is I was struck by the Kuhnian issue of these paradigm shifts. Um, and maybe you could give an example. I think when we think about moving to a sustainable energy system or thinking about the foreign policy implications of this new kind of energy, um, they're very difficult to grasp. But one big question is, is how do we deal with the, the equities that have benefited from this former model? So the oil and gas companies or this nation state model. How do you make a transition without disenfranchising the existing power players such that they would prevent you from doing that? Yeah. So maybe that's something you could weigh in on, is how do you manage that shift? This is a very important question, and there's more than uh, there are many dimensions to it. Uh, the first is really that, that uh, profound paradox that always exists when you deal with second order change. And that is, uh, when you deal with the change from the uh, 
how should I say it, with the language of the existing, you're already not on the, on the right direction. And yet, pragmatically, you say, how can I do different? Because they're all the structures, and I work with the structure, and I need to do it. So the, the, the uh, arrogant thing to say is that, OK, if you insist on dealing with your pragmatic needs, everyday needs, with the reality, uh, with the needs of your career, and so forth, you're not going to make the change, full stop. Uh, and that's sobering enough in its own right. So you need really uh, a major revolution here to make that change. This is one. But the other question, uh, uh, another thing that relates to that and to your question about the impediments, by very nature, existing mechanisms who benefit from the, <coughs> uh, from the status quo are going to resist you. This is true for any major change, so you can anticipate that. But now the question is uh, how to go about it. And I think that there is a way to go. I mean, clearly you cannot switch the, the, the thing overnight and say no more fossil fuel and we'll start uh, wind tomorrow. Uh, so you can anticipate that there is a period of uh, maybe quarter of a century uh, behind that transition. So the question is how to use this time in the most effective way, and we're not doing it. How to use this way in order to develop that global energy independent transition, and how to use the resources that are uh, produced by the current behavior in order to accelerate it, which we are not doing. There's no connection between the windfall profits of oil companies and gas companies and the transition. And in fact, the better they do, the more the delay in time on switching. So there are ways to deal with that, even structurally, right? If you can only persuade people to connect, but I, you know, I, I didn't see any evidence, I don't see much evidence in that world uh, other than saying, uh, look, the, 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 the real coin dropped for me at a very certain moment, and it, it was with the energy sector. Uh, one project that I've done with the bank was to try and develop a, a learning experience for bank officers about sustainability, bank officers in client countries. And uh, that allowed me a very interesting exposure to other parts of the multilateral, but also to some uh, private sector companies that were, including oil companies, that were Shell at the time was making a lot of noise and so forth, and certainly BP. So I, <laughs> I convinced the people I worked with at the bank that we'll do a, we'll do a documentary about what, the private, what, what the, some of the best CEOs were thinking and doing. And that allowed us to, uh, allowed me actually to choose four uh, CEOs like this that I thought were really doing interesting things. And one of them was George Brown, John Brown, at the time the head of BP. Remember BP, British Petroleum to Beyond Petroleum with the beautiful green stuff and so on. And uh, uh, I, I guess Jim Wolfenson arranged for me that access there. Uh, at the time, one of the most powerful men in the world and, and uh, bright as anything, I've never, really intelligent. And in the discussion with him, and BP at the time was about, what, $60 billion corporation a year? That was in 2005 or so. Uh, and they were making a lot of fuss about their investment in uh, renewables, and their portfolio was $100 million. Give me a break. Uh, give me a break. And in the discussion with him, it was very interesting uh, uh, because I was very excited by thing that he was uh, announcement he was making publicly. That's why I asked to speak with him. And uh, this was a year that the oil industry had a huge uh, windfall profit that was so embarrassing that actually the British Parliament had to enact some special tax laws to, for that year. 
So I asked him in that conversation, why can't you take uh, the profits, those huge profits, and invest them in accelerating your interest in renewables? And he said, we can't do this. Why can't you do this? It's illegal. Why it's illegal? Because the shareholders of the oil exploration are different than the shareholders in the renewables. And we can't use the profit of one to finance the other. And that's where I said, come on, guys, you're only playing. It was clear, the, the oil and gas industry, they're smart people. They know exactly what's there. They intend to squeeze the lemon until the last drop, uh, because that's where the most profit will come now in the next uh, 25 years or so. Uh, and there's no connection between what we are doing out of greed and what we need to do if we want to make sense. Uh, and structurally, it's that to make that connection. Yeah, make profit now on the oil, but invest it. Uh, not in building more mansions and more uh, private planes and more accelerating, actually, all the <laughs> adverse impact. But how can you take that and, and really focus on, uh, on, on, on one global uh, Marshall Plan to get rid of fossil fuel once and for all? You have a question here. <clears throat> How are we doing, Dick? Uh, good morning. Uh, Jun Kroda uh, from Japanese Embassy. Uh, thank you very much for the very stimulating uh, discussion. Uh, I'm not sure how I can frame my question, but... Uh, In Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> Could you sort of uh, weight the four principle, uh, five principle? I mean, the any priority, because one way to look at it is that, listening to your explanation, I thought most policy challenges can be explained by economic dimension. You talked about externalities. So if we can you know, incorporate many externalities into economic uh, activities, then most uh, problem can be solved. Maybe other four dimensions can be can be put into the consideration yeah. how we can you know put those externality into economics. So if we can have a one guy, and I I'm asking this because it seems most activities are guided by economic principle. Yeah. So if we can sort of uh, sort things out along that big one principle, then it may be easier for people to understand what we should do. Thank you. Yeah, I, I don't think it's a question. I, I totally agree with what you're saying. If we were to include externalities, then we will have the market force that will drive us in the right direction, but we don't. Uh, look, a, a very good example is the fracking, for example, right? Fracking is being held as a, a new, cheap, clean source, right? Clean only because it, does, it's, it's, it doesn't produce smoke. Uh, uh, and cheap only because you don't <coughs> count all the huge externalities that are involved here. So I, I think this is one of the, uh, if I had to pick one key uh, uh, issue for young economists today is to start working on those externalities and, and begin to develop a theory that can be implemented in that world. This is really the, uh, the, the and there's some that are beginning to work on this. And as I mentioned, I mentioned that Jeff, the global environment facility with the incremental cost. When you think about it, this is actually, as I mentioned, it's a primitive externality because it, it, it doesn't measure anything other than say, yeah, it, it, we, the donors, uh, admit that it's worth our while to pay a million dollars for a cleaner thing. 
But that has to be expanded and, and uh, become the, the basis uh, of, of the new economics. There's, there's one corporation that has actually done this under a private contract with, I think, Cooper's Librand or whatever the new name is. They're all conglomerated now. But it was Puma Corporation. <clears throat> I think it was for 2011. And their profits under the normal or conventional uh, economic uh, accounting system was, were $257 million that year. And they asked Coopers to bring all the externalities that, of their entire world process back onto the balance sheet and recalculate. And their profits were $50 million. So you can, that's $207 million that is considered environmental debt. And there's a very interesting book called um, Environmental Debt, written by a woman named Amy Larkin that uh, details this. But I think it's a, it was a surprising thing for a corporation to do. This uh, is really very important. <coughs> With Project Wadiatir, we are beginning now to go about it in the other way. Uh, because it, the, the project, incidentally, I did mention, it's about $10 million project now. So the eight years, I think, will be done with what we set up to do next year. Uh, and I think that as an economic model for the future, it will require a number of sources. Uh, it, will it will obviously will have to uh, become the, the business units. I didn't mention what they were, the dairy and the medicinal plants. We are producing cosmetic products for medicinal plants, desert, wild desert medicinal plants and so on. Those will have to produce enough income to carry themselves. But the kind of activities that I'd like to see there in the future, educational and research, will always require some support, which I think will come from special public funds, government and other, and then some philanthropy. So what we're trying to do now, actually, is to we, we hope to work with a Milliken Institute for Innovation uh, to develop an, the economic model for Project Wadiatir in order to justify <laughs> uh, the nonprofit uh, part of it, mm. you see, and in order to put value on all the social and other dimensions that we are obviously creating immense value there. What does it mean that you take community and you bring them from here to here? What does it mean, all, uh, all, all, all of those kind of things? I think it might uh, be a good point, the last point, to segue to your recent experience at Lawrence Livermore Laboratory and the... Uh, oh, the impediment. The, as, a, as an impediment, the, the laser inertial fusion technology with energy source, which is a, um, sort of at the stage of, of development. Within 10 years, they think they can have a, a uh, operational plant. Um, and I think this is exceedingly exciting, okay. or was until. Yeah, th this brings us back to the notion of the impediments. And the question that uh, you asked about, the, uh, which I answered in a very positive way, uh, uh, positive in the sense of saying all you need is to connect them and, and so on. Uh, but the comment that I really should have made is that we should never underestimate the resistant power of those huge entities. They are the biggest. Uh, elephants in our economy, and they are conservative in nature, and they want to keep what they're doing because that's what they do best, and so on. And this is, is something that I was telling Peter. Uh, I feel a little hesitating about uh, talking publicly about it, but f uh, I, I was invited to chair a very interesting task force in Canada 
that, that was put together by the Nuclear Waste Management Organization to study, uh, there was a little commission that was put together by that organization uh, that was asked by the government to look at ways to deal with nuclear waste. And what that group that I chaired was tasked to do was to create an evaluation methodology to evaluate different options for dealing with nuclear waste and to, and to uh, advise the government how, which one of those is, is best. I'll get to Livermore. Uh, and there was another American, there was a group of about 10 people, a very, very interesting group. And we did a very excellent work. There was another American uh, who was a, a nuclear scientist from Livermore. So he took us to visit uh, Livermore just as a curiosity. Uh, and I don't know if you know, one of the large uh, projects that was going on in Livermore for the last few years was the, what's called the National Ignition Facility, which was the American version of creating uh, fusion. Uh, that was not in order to solve the energy <laughs> crisis or problem. Uh, that fusion facility was developed because once America, uh, the United States signed the, uh, how do you call it, the agreement, uh, not, not non-proliferation, but uh, not, uh, not doing experiment uh, underground or there. Nuclear it, it means that you, you, don't, you <coughs> cannot do research anymore on thermonuclear explosions, so you can't create better bombs. So the idea was how, to, how can you create uh, thermonuclear phenomena in laboratory in a small scale so you can keep studying it and simulating and so forth. And that's launched the National Ignition Facility. It started about 15 years ago. And the idea was to create actually a controlled fusion. It, it's a, a, so we went to see that facility. It's, it's a fantastic piece of science and technology. It's unbelievable. Unlike the European Japanese uh, methods of using uh, accelerated particles to bombard the uh, uh, hydrogen isotopes to create helium and energy. Here, the idea was to bombard the pellets with uh, uh, laser beams. So the whole laser technology had to be developed. Really fantastic project. Fantastic because once you entered it, it it's a, a very large facility, like four football fields, because you have to run the laser beams to purify them completely. And it's an environment that you realize it's, it's unlike our world in general, it's an environment where you have to operate with uh, z uh, uh, zero tolerance for error. Not 0 0.000001, zero. No, the actual ignition moment that you have to be able to capture and measure uh, lasts uh, uh, three millions of a second, if you can <laughs> even imagine. So it's a fantastic technology. And I was very excited about it. I was thinking every child in the, in the country has to be brought there to see the kind of integrity that be behind this kind of an effort. Uh, and so it was just a visit. And a couple of years later, they were approaching. This was at the end of uh, 2014. They were approaching the moment of truth. And basically, the scientists were feeling that they, that they are really that far from actually getting the result that they were seeking. And suddenly, it dawned on them. Remember, these are all uh, physicists, basically. Uh, who have no involvement with the world, suddenly they realize, my God, if we are successful, this has huge implications, and we should think about it. What, what does it mean to the world? So a group of them started the project that they call LIFE for uh, laser inferential uh, fusion energy or something. Right. And they went on to design a, a model fusion react reactor uh, 
you, you realize what is happening here. If they, were, if they would be successful in that, energy is no longer an issue. Because from a bottle of water like this, you can create enough energy for the world for a year or something. Uh, so they started involving, they started calling in people from outside to that facility to start thinking, what, what if we are successful? What can we do with this? What does it mean? How do we move it to the public? How to, um, and these discussions are going on. And this young, a group of youngsters are, are, are showing us model for a fusion that they were saying in 10 years they can have operating in California linked to the utilities. And I'm thinking, sitting there and thinking, God, I mean, if you think anyone will allow you to do it, you're crazy. And I actually wrote this paper for them at their, at their request about my thought about the looking at that through the uh, principle of what I mean. This was October. By December, that whole thing was dismantled. Uh, you started having uh, editorials in the New York Times by some uh, very powerful senators. We have to stop spending money on this crazy scientists who are not, don't know what they're doing and so forth. The guy who headed that, Ed Moses, who headed that uh, program for 15 years, a genius if ever I've seen one, was just sent away somewhere else. And this whole thing fizzled out. Uh, again, I, I'm not a conspiracy theory kind of person, but uh, my, my, uh, my basic uh, uh, experience there in another issues that I was born with the fracking uh, taught me that there are some very powerful interests there that are not eager to see the transition happening. I think we'll call it there. Thank you all very much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you and to talk. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, everybody.